Hello and welcome. Just one more week to go. Everyone's eyes are on the polls, which have been closing. A bad-tempered NATO summit came and went this week, and the Conservatives can relax. Air Force One has taken off again, with no big upset caused by President Trump. So, as the campaign draws to a close, Inside Briefing is here to guide you through the political pitfalls, constitutional quagmires, and all these things which are about to unfold. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This time next week, we will know who's won the election, probably. And then what happens after that? How does a prime minister prepare for power? What do the first 24 hours in office actually bring? What should the nation's civil servants be thinking right now? And what on earth happens if no party emerges with a majority? But what about an issue which whoever is in power must address? How to solve the problem of social care? We'll take a closer look. And how have the broadcasters coped with a general election campaign more unpredictable and at times more poisonous than ever? We speak to Joe Coburn, the presenter of the BBC's Politics Live. Joining me on today's podcast, Hannah White, the IFG's deputy director. She knows Whitehall and Westminster inside out after a decade in Parliament and the civil service. Hannah, the Conservatives tried to label the last Parliament the dead Parliament. (laughs) You used to work there. What do you reckon this one will be called? I think in a very IFG way, I'll probably contest that. I don't think that, uh, I think the last parliament was very much alive. And the fact is, it may have had a deadening effect on the government, the minority government that Mm. couldn't get its way. But that's in a way exactly what parliaments are for. So, you know, perhaps it's the next parliament that's going to be dead. If uh, if we see a large majority, we might see much less excitement in parliament. Much less drama. Indeed. Kath, you've been following all that drama. Um, Our senior fellow, Kath Haddon, this is your fourth general election at the IFG. Mm -hmm. As we game all the outcomes, we work out all the results. Is this your favourite week of the year? Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, it's certainly one that's full of excitement, um, but one that also causes me a little bit of anxiety, maybe. Just, you know, it all co- what's fascinating is it all comes to a head. So you've got to prepare for all these different scenarios, same as everyone else, but the politicians, civil service, the media. You've got to think but through... all these constitutional exactly. outcomes. Exactly. So I've got to be well. ready for any number of constitutional outcomes, but also we could see then just a majority government come in and then you're talking about very different aspects of becoming Prime Minister. Some of the stuff, we'll get to it later, uh, is all quite routine. But yeah, it, look, it's it's fascinating. That's probably why I'm still at the IFG, still doing this stuff. Is I do find it fascinating. And as our special guest, we're delighted to be joined by Sebastian Payne, the Whitehall correspondent at the Financial Times. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for taking a break from your podcast to join our podcast. (laughs) You've been going around the country following the campaign in a little mini, I think you've been tweeting. Indeed, I've spent a lot of it in the north of England in these so-called red war seats where the Conservatives think their majority might lie. But I've had some other bits and bobs as well. I was in the West Country a couple of days ago. I'm off to Birmingham tonight to see Jeremy Corbyn and then off to Canterbury on Friday. So dodging as many marginals as possible. Right. And anything you think is shifting, that you can feel shifting? I think the fundamental thing I've found from the doorstep on this campaign is that Jeremy Corbyn is spectacularly unpopular and that dominates absolutely every conversation amongst Labour supporters, potential Labour supporters and Conservative voters as well. But they don't necessarily love Boris Johnson. I think this is where the danger spot lies for the Tories in this, is that people say, look, I can't stand that man Corbyn. Some of it's Brexit, some of it's his personality, some of it's his manifesto, but they're not running into the Conservative arms and that's why I think really these last 10 days are so important to 
of the Conservatives say, look, if you want to stop this guy you hate, you have to vote for us. You can't vote for anyone else. And you were with Hugh Grant, weren't you, as he attempted to sprinkle some stardust on the Lib Dem campaign? Obviously the highlight of the election so far, when he's doing his tactical voting tour around the country, backing Lib Dem and Labour candidates to try and stop Brexit and stop the Tories. But it all came a cropper rather quickly because he was out with Luciana Berger in North London and they used this, obviously having Hugh Grant on the doorstep, recreating Love Actually into some sort of Leave Actually sequel. <laughs> and I've used that joke several times. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a good, good one. You've got another week Kurt, to yeah. use it. And the Lib Dems took this footage and said, brilliant to have Hugh Grant on the doorstep. The only way to stop Brexit is to vote Liberal Democrat, to which Hugh Grant then retweeted it and said, no, it isn't. Because that's the whole point of his um, tactical voting tour. Mm. With friends like those. OK, days to go. Hannah, what stood out for you this penultimate week of campaigning? What I thought was really remarkable was the sight of our Prime Minister, who in any normal uh, election campaign would be doing his utmost to look super minister, uh, prime ministerial mm. um, at a NATO summit, doing mm. everything he possibly could to avoid having a meeting with uh, uh, President Trump. You mm. know, in, in, in previous election campaigns, there would have been, you know... M- a prime minister moving heaven and earth to get that special time uh, to enhance that reputation of of, of of being the prime ministerial candidate, and we had just the opposite of that. This, but week, this is was... this is a reaction against 2017, when obviously the Conservative Theresa May did have that meeting with Trump, and uh, he caused a lot of problems for her. I mean, they are in a safety first um, kind of mode at the moment of just as Seb's just said, trying to get through that final week um, and you know cons- consolidate the sort of. Pol- lead that they've got at the moment. Do you think the Conservatives managed to neutralise the threat of I think so. I think they'll be absolutely delighted by how it went from their perspective because, again, just going back to what you were saying earlier about how US presidents always want to get close to UK prime ministers, remember Gordon Brown having the brush by with Barack Obama in Mm. the kitchen of the UN, which was a low point for UK diplomacy, I think. That was an arranged brush by. That was the the best they could do. Which, again, is even more depressing by (laughs) itself. It just shows how far British diplomacy has now gone. But the fact is, in the run-up to the Trump visit, Downing Street was desperately putting it through the back channels. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't get into a row with Sadiq Khan or Piers Morgan or anybody Mm. else on Twitter. Just stick to the line. And surprisingly, that's exactly what he did. There was a bilateral though in Downing Street because Downing Street kept telling us, no, 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 nothing in the diary, nothing in the diary. And of course there was a bilateral meeting where the pair of them had discussions and I'm sure Boris Johnson said to him once again, please stick to the stick. You've done so well so far. You're being such a great help to this campaign. Just please don't change anything. Don't mention the NHS. (laughs) I don't think Trump actually knows what the NHS is, by the way. That's my... Even though he said he wouldn't want it on a silver platter, but he still, I think, you know, it is a concept that... um is a, a long to... 3,000 miles away from him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, if you talk about socialised health care, which is how a lot of Americans describe the health service, um, then he might know what it is. But it's just, every time he talks about it, it's just like he's saying things he's been told to say and doesn't get what he's talking about. Because, you know, there is a justified question about pharmaceuticals and the price of drugs, where there may be a deal to be done and is not privatising the NHS or what have you. But I just don't think Trump thinks in that level of detail. Well, we'll have all that to come back to, I'm sure. Let's try and fast forward a week. And I want to just take us to, if you like, the first minutes, first hours after the election result, uh, if we have a prime minister Mm. that is a government forming. And um, Kath, tell us about what actually 
happens when the Prime Minister takes power, what those first hours look like? Well, I mean, this time round is going to be very interesting. Everyone's going to be looking at the exit polls. So there'll actually be a period from sort of 10 o'clock the night before to as the results sort of come out and confirm or not um, that exit poll, it will then be, become clear what the Prime Minister is going to do. Because really then it's about on that morning... Um, if there's a majority, you know, it's clear the Prime Minister stays on. There's probably a courtesy trip to the palace, but uh, by and large, a lot of what else we might be talking about in the next week won't happen. But if there's any kind of uncertainty, then it's really about Boris Johnson's first move. Because as the incumbent, it's whether or not he resigns, whether or not he says, I'm staying on, I'm going to have another minority government, whether there's any kind of negotiations going on with the parties and, and things like that. And that really then, this time round, will guide everything that happens after that, because the civil service are ready for all sorts of briefings, whether it's a return prime minister, a new prime minister. New they're having to plan so for forth. all these. We're just a week out for the election and they're really having to plan for pretty well every kind of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, they can only do so much. The main thing they've got to do is get their departments, get themselves ready to be fleet of foot, to be nimble on the day, because, you know, we could see everything from, uh, you know, a few days of negotiation or even uncertainty for several weeks while we wait to see whether or not Boris Johnson comes back and can pass legislation in the House of Commons and can actually survive as a, a Prime Minister or whether he does something dramatic on the day because he's not got the numbers and he decides, no, I'm going to put Corbyn in. What are the kind of mistakes that Prime Ministers make in the first 24 hours? I think one often they often do far too quickly is when they decide to sack people very quickly. Very I mean, good the, point. If mm. the Tories do get this kind of 60 majority, then the hubris in number 10 will be, oh, we'll be spilling out of all the doors and windows and they'll be thinking, oh, we can get rid of all these people, form a big new government and it will mm. look different and feel different. It will be great. And what, they've got this first plan for the 100 days. There'd be a Queen's speech on the 19th and obviously bring back the Brexit withdrawal agreement. It could all start to go quite quickly, but I think that feels like a big one. Could I actually ask you a question yeah. about how what happens in this very odd situation? So let's say we get a hung parliament mm -hmm. and the Tories are the, clearly the biggest party, mm -hmm. but they can't command a majority because the DUP wouldn't support them in a confidence motion. But Mr Corbyn is, as John McDonnell has told the FT today, they will not form a, they will simply try and form as a minority government. Mm -hmm. How does that work for the Queen? Because obviously we know that the Tories, because if, if, the D, if they can't do a deal with the DUP, they can't command the confidence. Mm -hmm. But Labour also can't command the confidence. This is a great question. It is a great question. I was going to email you this this week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can do it. I can do it anyway. Glad Look, I mean, for this. First and foremost, the incumbent Prime Minister can stay on and test the will of the House. They are Prime Minister until, unless and until they resign. Now, um, obviously, political reality will out. So 1974, 2010, uh, in both cases, the incumbent Prime Minister, it became clear over a matter of days, they wouldn't be able to command a majority. They decided to put the opposition in. But you go back to 1923, uh, the then Prime Minister thought they would stay on and try and get a King's speech through. This time round, what could be extraordinary is that we have a Queen's speech that actually is launched on the 19th, but then is put on hold because the Prime Minister wants to have a go and see one last time, can they get their withdrawal agreement through? It really depends what the numbers are, I think, because if they're close and they're, it's just about managing to turn a few people to get that all-important vote through, then maybe he stays on. But that's why I say there's a good chance that if it's just not viable to get the withdrawal agreement through and Boris Johnson doesn't want to stay on, have to put through legislation for a referendum, things like that, does he just decide to resign and give it 
straight to Corbyn. I think the important question, though, is, you know, what does commanding the confidence of the House mean in this context? Because, mm. you know, it could be that, that Johnson puts forward a Queen's speech and although people don't vote to support it, they might abstain in mm. order to allow it to pass, allow him to govern as a minority, but with nobody saying, actually, we're going to lend you our support. And then again, they comes back to that question, if he can't actually do anything, yeah. if he's going to be in another gridlock parliament, what does he do in that and, the, and this is one of the things that confuses people, because we don't have a sort of ordered process. A lot of other countries have formal processes. And quite about, long processes. I'm yeah. thinking, thinking of America. And then the, exactly. you know, the weeks and months go by. And... The largest party gets to negotiate first, and there's sort of an order of how they do go about doing those negotiations and so forth. We have this slightly chaotic thing where you just sort of expect it to become logical about who could. So if you did have an opposition party who could either get a coalition together or a confidence and supply that got them over into a working majority, that changes the balance. But it's really about political reality because it means that they can show to the media, to the public, to the incumbent prime minister, look, we do have the numbers. Your position is not viable. But in the absence of all of that, it just then becomes about what's the logic of what's likely to happen in Parliament. And just asking another thing on the back of that, Kath, so what happens if nobody commands the confidence? If there's mm. two weeks, can't get a Queen's speech through, can't get a Brexit withdrawal agreement through, nor can Labour pass a Queen's speech, do we automatically go into another election? No, not automatically. Um, you effectively have caretaker government through all of this period. So again, incumbent prime minister, you're supposed to have... Because you've always got to have a prime minister. You've got to have a prime minister. So that means that the prime minister ought not to resign, you know, if there's no clarity. But frankly, there is clarity because if if Boris Johnson decided to resign, then it would go first to the leader of the opposition. But if he didn't and he stayed there... Um, what, what about what Seb's saying? Do, do we go to another election? Uh, Boris Johnson say, is staying there, saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be leading a minority government. Jeremy Corbyn saying, no, I can put together yeah. a minority government. No, that's when it goes back to what I was saying. The test is normally the Queen's speech, or it has been in the past. Even with Fixed Term Parliaments Act, that doesn't really change that. Um, you know, there has to be some kind of indication early on in Parliament that you do not have the numbers. And, and historically, Queen's speech was a, a great opportunity for a Parliament to turn around and say, no, you've not got the numbers. Which but is why the 23-24 example is the the 1923-24 example is the the key one that we turn to. But you'd still have to have the opposition trigger um, the 14-day so period to under get to an election. Act, no, you wouldn't. Me? You wouldn't necessarily. I mean, there is no reason why other forms of confidence, like a Queen speech, in the aftermath of an uncertain election result, shouldn't say to a prime minister, "You've got to go." Um, if this they, is Boris Johnson, might this you, is just absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you get into fixed term parliaments act. Because yes, if he did resist, and even with pressure from the palace saying, "No, I need to give." you know, Jeremy Corbyn, an opportunity, you should resign in these circumstances. Even with that pressure, he stayed on. The ultimate backstop, yes, is the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. But then you get into this situation that we've discussed before. You've got the 14-day period. You know, can Jeremy Corbyn, with the support of others, say, we're going to form an alternative government? The parties won't want to go straight back into an election. It's much more likely the Conservatives would want to put Corbyn in to have to take this referendum through and then get some months of that and look to an election in September. And so do you get the sense that... um Either part of the big two parties are really ready to go. I mean, they've put these out these manifestos, but I mean, from you, you've been talking to MPs for the past week or so, do they really? Does it feel real to them that they could be in in government? I think for the Tories, it does. That you know, they entered this campaign so far ahead, and you know, the, the, there has been a tightening of their vote over the past five, four, yeah. five weeks. But generally, they most 
there's no one I met who doesn't think they're, they're not going to be back in government. They think it could be tight. You know, I began by thinking we'd end up with a 5 to 15 Tory majority. I think it might be a bit higher now simply because of this universal dislike among the electorate of Mr Corbyn. Uh, on the Labour side... they Not come, quite universal, I'd say. Not I mean, quite he's presumably going to get some sorry, votes, but, they, they will. but we are very literal at the IFG. <laughs> Absolutely, I would yeah. want nothing less. Uh, in key marginal seats, shall we say. But Fine. I think for the Labour side of it, you know, they've had uh, Lord Kerslake, who's been advising them on their preparations for government. And he was the former head of the civil service and, and obviously knows something about preparation about for government. government. But, so they have been prepping for government there and they have got a plan about how they would adapt things and there's been conversations between uh, senior people at the Treasury and the Shadow Treasury team, as you always get. Mm. But I think, And indeed, I should say, the Institute for Government does work with any opposition on preparing for government. Uh, absolutely. And I think the, the, the question for Labour, though, is... If they're not going to get an absolute majority, which I think everybody thinks is absolutely mm. going to ha- not going to happen because of Scotland and because of the demographics of this country, how does their electoral platform look in the form of minority government? Mm. Because that's one thing they've not really addressed and they obviously don't want to address because they're acknowledging they're not going to win in that circumstance. Because if they cobble together this Labour, SNP, Lib Dem, Plaid, Rainbow Coalition that would give them a Commons majority in that situation... I'm sure there's things they could find common currency on in terms of probably repealing the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Everybody wants to get rid of that. Um, various things to universal credit and And the referendum, rates. of course. And, of course, the referendum. Is this a government just to do the referendum, which one would assume it would be? But for Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell... The referendum is so far down their list of priorities. They want a transformative socialist agenda. And that's their first thing. So if they're having to go in a minority government and being told, no, no, you can't do nationalisation, you can't do all the things you promised, but you can do a referendum, that is purgatory for Jeremy Corbyn. And all those nationalisations and so on would require complex legislation, which would need yeah. to be drafted over you know a period of time and then would have a hell of a time getting through a minority parliament, I think. you know, It would, it would not be easy, even if you could get other parties to sign up, that at some point that would be on the agenda. So let, let me ask you just one final thing. What if Boris Johnson loses his seat? Uh, yes, this is a question that we are getting asked quite a lot and have an explainer on, actually, Bronwyn, yeah. um, as ever, always topical at the IFG. Um, I mean, the reality is he's not an um, MP at the moment. So it is possible constitutionally for uh, prime minister, four ministers to continue in office whilst they are not MPs. But Can you just remind us why he's not an MP at the moment. There are no MPs during an election campaign. Everyone just becomes a candidate. Thank you. Um, So... If he loses his seat, though, the main issue is going to be political and it is unsustainable over a period of time. There's, you know, long constitutional precedent about um, prime minister and and the majority of the cabinet coming from the House of Commons. So it is unsustainable over a long period of time. The reality is you're probably looking at somebody giving up a safe Conservative seat and a by-election. But he can still be prime minister. He can still be prime minister through that period of time. He's got to weather the political fallout of it, but the constitutional constitutional part of it shouldn't be such a problem. And I heard there was a, there's a plan very much locked away in the safes of the Conservative Party because they obviously don't want to talk about this situation nope. where Dominic Raab, who is still Foreign Secretary and is still First Secretary of State, even though he's not an MP, would represent the PM in the Commons and be the government's voice there. Assuming he didn't lose his seat. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. They could all lose yeah. the note. But I think, I think the, the political question, coming back to what you, you said, would very much be about 
how big was that majority? If mm. Boris won, say, a 60-seat majority and it just happens Uxbridge wasn't one of them, mm. then I think people would go, oh, bad luck, let's get this sorted and move on. If it was a sort of majority of five, people might be a bit less forgiving. Yeah, and I mean, the the really difficult scenario for the cons- uh, Conservative Party is what if he loses his seat and they are that close but still a minority government? Because then you're having discussions with the Queen about who should be the Prime Minister and if you've got Jeremy Corbyn been still in the Commons, able to sort of argue that he's close enough, could be made Prime Minister. And then you've got a Prime Minister, because he still is in that role until he resigns, who's lost his seat, who's struggling to get the numbers, then it makes that situation much more difficult. Reporting on politics is challenging at the best of times, but it's more complicated in the digital and social media age. Calling out fake news, fighting back against accusations of bias, working out what to do with politicians who simply refuse to turn up to the studio. It's now the heart of the job for a political journalist. And yes, at the time of recording, Boris Johnson still hasn't found a time in his diary for that sit-down to talk to Andrew Neil. Our IFG colleague Sam McCrory spoke to the BBC's Joe Coburn, presenter of Politics Live, to get a sense of how broadcasters are handling the challenges of this general election. Can you just tell me a bit about what the BBC newsroom is like during an election campaign? Frantic. It's always frantic during an election campaign, but of course there's always an added layer of hecticness around the fact that it's a snap election. I mean, we've been expecting it, of course, but then when it happens, it feels like it's quite rushed. When it comes to a general election, although everybody feels how exciting... It's a general election. We all know what to do. We know the drill. Everybody is sent out following the various parties, following the various campaigns. It still feels frenetic. And how does this one feel compared to previous ones that you've covered? In some ways, it feels angrier. I think because everybody's emotions were already heightened by Brexit, by the stalemate in Parliament, and by the fact that there hadn't been a resolution... Uh, for any side involved in politics over the last three years, I think people were at a level where they felt, right, now's our opportunity to win and set out an agenda and solve Brexit to some extent. So you've heard these campaign slogans from the Tories, get Brexit done. Labour have also said we'll get Brexit sorted. You've heard Labour with the NHS is not for sale when talking about a future trade deal um, if we leave the EU between the US and the UK. And the Tories saying that they need a majority government in order to move on to the other priorities. There's a slight sense of hysteria around some of the the messaging and how it's coming across and how they're communicating it. An obsession to stick very, very specifically to those Brexit slogans. So we hear it on air, you hear it in the TV debates, and whatever you ask... And however you pose the question, um, I think it was the first day of the election campaign, the official election campaign, we had Nazim Zahawi for the Conservatives and Andy Macdonald for Labour locking horns with their competing strategies and their competing vision of the world at quite a, I would say, angry level. Tempers were, were running high. And they don't really engage, they just attack. And when you're presenting politics live when you've got politicians doing that what's your what's your aim are you trying to get a scoop or to sort of get information or just create good television 
Well, you are trying to create good television, and good television does mean something compelling, something that you want the viewer to keep watching. Now, does that mean you only go for heat rather than light? No. The idea is to have a mix. But it's not a bad thing to have two politicians locking horns or two members of the panel. They may not be politicians. Putting forward different views of the world as well as specifics on policies. So some of the best programmes we've had is where the conversation is between a number of people on the panel. They take that conversation over and you can let it go wherever it seems to you know, be taken by the people who are your guests. Where it doesn't work is where there's too much talking over, where there is too much shouting. That can be off-putting. Uh, so it's a balance. So you just have to make a decision while you're on air. You can let them have their row and then pull it back and try and return it to the issue at hand. And you make that decision, really, as to how long and how fruitful that is. But I think for the audience... They want lies. They always say they want lies to be dispelled, challenge the myths, and we've tried to do that quite robustly with both sides. And both sides haven't enjoyed that. Um, and I think as long as you do it fairly and you set out exactly what you are trying to explain to the viewer, um, and it can be... I mean, on Brexit, it was always about parliamentary procedure to some extent, um, as well as what Brexit might mean, what a second referendum might mean. In the general election campaign, it's been about spending pledges... It's been about the accusations, the claim and counterclaim by both parties on each other's policies, and you need to call it out. And do you think that interest in parliamentary procedure, which has been caused because of minority government, will that continue if we go back to majority government? It's a very good question. If we go to majority government, if it's on the Conservative side, they've promised that they will get the first stage of Brexit completed, the divorce agreement and the, and the political declaration by the end of January. I wonder if interest will slightly wane at that point because people who want to remain in the EU will think, well, it's sort of game over. If Labour, former government, win the election, we will have a second referendum. No, I think interest in terms of what might happen will come back because you are then talking about another poll, another referendum, where that Brexit issue is going to be front and centre, obviously. Um, some people will think it's a rerun of what we've already had. Others will, you know, as you know, the arguments will say, no, now we know uh, what's on offer and if Labour uh, renegotiate a Brexit deal. It will be back to those arguments on both sides of the Brexit debate. And on Brexit, how has it changed the way that the BBC approaches its journalism or plans for its programmes? It's made it more difficult because Brexit has been the issue that has changed traditional party loyalties in a way that no other issue has. So you have got these cross-party and intra-party divisions over the issue of Brexit that go way beyond the traditional loyalties, particularly to the Conservatives and to the Labour Party, obviously less so for the Liberal Democrats because they have had a position that they have held, um, which is not that divorced, I would think, from most people who vote Liberal Democrat, um, and the Brexit Party the same. So I think it, it's made it hard in the sense that when you're balancing a programme... And because you don't always know on a panel discussion programme exactly where the discussion and conversation is going to go, you've got to make sure that you're balancing leave and remain and left and right on other issues. And they don't always marry up. 
and it's it's not as easy to do as people think because you still want the conversation to flow you can't represent every single position on every single subject on every single panel and then there's a lot of responsibility on the presenter to make sure that 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 conversation is representing the various flavors of brexit and that i suppose has led to what's been a bit of an open season of attacking journalists broadcasters the bbc for people saying that you're you're being biased and not impartial and so on is that what can be done to to counter that i think you just have to stick to your guns and you have to say look here's the evidence these are the people that we have on please make sure you provide people when we ask you i mean today the conservatives didn't put up a, a representative well then it's very difficult to say well you know we, we we had no one to defend your policies but we had to discuss them anyway we have to be robust and we have to keep checking and rechecking that we are being fair in every single way you could cut the political divide and we do that and we do it i think we do it very well and i think other broadcasters do the same i think when parties attack us i think they're losing the argument they only tend to attack the media when they themselves are not getting their message across and when they feel that they're under pressure it's an easy hit to blame journalists uh, and, and blame the media when we are bending over backwards to ensure that our panels are fair and that they represent every single shade of opinion. Is it becoming more of a challenge to get politicians onto shows or to hold them to account? Because they can now use Facebook or their Twitter account just to speak directly to voters. Yes, I think it is becoming more difficult. The demands on politicians are huge, to be fair to them. And in the main, they do provide us with representatives and then you can hold them to account. The social media, the digital war is so important now to political parties and we've seen that um, on steroids in this particular election too. And I think there is a sense in the parties, press operations and campaigning organisations that you get a few messages, you target them very, very carefully on social media it's a relatively easy way to reach as many people as possible. And the sort of air war for the broadcasters, you are having to find people every day for every programme. I mean, that's a big demand, but that's politics for you in, in you know, the 24-hour digital world. And talking of politicians turning up for interviews, is it more damaging for a politician to submit themselves to a challenging interview or to refuse to take part in a challenging interview? No names mentioned. no. We won't mention uh, the most prominent one, not yet to do the Andrew Neil interview, uh, for example. I think they'll take a view on that. I would always say as a journalist, it's better to turn up and be scrutinised, better to face the music. You know, if you believe in what you're doing, you, you, you must be able to justify it and defend it. And I think you are liable to be accused of running scared if you don't. But, I suppose, campaigns will take a view about whether actually it's worth taking a little bit of a hit and running scared and not having to uh, bear the scrutiny or perhaps the humiliation of not being able to answer some questions. Joe Coburn there speaking to Sam McCrory. Seb, do you think the rules of engagement have changed between politicians and journalists? This election certainly is much more difficult. This is the third election that I've covered uh, as a political journalist. And I think the challenge is that so much of the debate is not happening in the public eye now. A lot of it's on social media, a lot more targeting. Uh, The access for print journalists is getting worse all the time. That often we don't know where the candidates are. You know, for Jeremy Corbyn, we actually have to go on his Facebook page and see where he's turning up because they only tell you half the time. Uh, The Prime Minister, you're almost never told, whereas broadcasters obviously are there because they want the... 
secu- security or they want to control it? They would obviously say it's security. I think it's almost certainly because they want to control it and they want to have an environment as much as possible where, you know, things go to plan as they see it. Is, is this new, though? I mean, all journalists know the kind of argument or the kind of repost of you've got your facts wrong, the fact is I'm right. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's this... Que- it's, the, 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 the levels of engagement, the rules of engagement, I should say, I think, are getting questioned in a way they haven't been before. That There's an accusation from some course, so putting it very broadly, it's hardcore Brexit supporters and hardcore Jeremy Corbyn supporters, that some people are just totally not being fair, they are not wanting to listen to them and give them a reasonable case. And I think that makes it much more difficult because whatever you say, you know, we're recording this on the day that this report from the Jewish Labour movement's come out, which has absolutely appalling stuff in about anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And I've tweeted this out, and I mean, the stuff that came back was just it makes you feel depressed for human nature, saying it's all lies, it's not true, then accusing me of being part of some Israeli Zionist lobby for tweeting this thing out. And it just feels like our whole discourse has gone into the absolute gutter in this election. And it's it's certainly the party's fault for their stupid, vacuous sloganeering that distills everything down into a soundbite of three or five words. And when you have debate on that level, then you have no room for any nuance or any compromise. Well, we've heard this on so many fronts that nothing is uh, taken as independent or impartial anymore, not the civil service, the judiciary, uh, think tanks and the rest. We'll come back to all these questions. Seb, many thanks indeed. Let's turn to our big idea, which this week focuses on the lack of a big idea about social care in the party manifestos. Perhaps that's not surprising. The Conservative Party's general election campaign unravelled in 2017 when its radical plans to pay for social care fell apart in public. Or didn't, if you believe Theresa May's shrill insistence that nothing had changed. This year there is no plan. Some parties are promising a lot of money, but is that enough? This is a complex problem that isn't going away, and it's one that's getting worse. So what's the solution? Joining us this week is Nick Davies, Programme Director at the IFG and the man in charge of our Performance Tracker project, which had some stark warnings about the sums of money needed simply to meet the growing demand for social care. What's your big idea this week? Uh, The big idea this week is building cross-party consensus for social care reform. Both the Conservative uh, and Liberal Democrat manifestos suggested reaching cross-party consensus, perhaps through a convention of some sort, on how to really change and improve social care. We think this is a, a good idea. Indeed, it's something that the Institute recommended last year, uh, setting up a cross-party inquiry modelled on the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards that looked into the LIBOR scandal to try and build consensus uh, specifically on the issue of how you raise additional money to fund social care. Um, Indeed, the Conservatives have said this is something that they want to prioritise in their first 100 days of a new government. And the hope is that by saying so little in their manifesto about what they do on social care, that they might have detoxified the issue a little compared to 2017 and given themselves the space to try and find cross-party consensus in the new year. Why is it such a big problem? What, what about the amount of money involved? So it's a, it's a small amount of money compared to the NHS, but it's still quite a lot of money compared to most other things. Um, I mean, 
to put some context, the system is under a huge amount of pressure at the moment. Uh, demand for care has risen, but funding has been cut. Uh, fewer people now receive uh, support uh, from the state and are increasingly relying on uh, family and friends. And So this is all kinds of care. This is residential care. This is care in your own home. A lot of it's to do with being elderly, but some of it not. It's for people who need help with living from the state. Uh, absolutely. So Actually, about kind of half the spending on adult social care goes on working age adults. But you're right, most of the debate is around the elderly. Uh, and it's about the support they may receive in their own home, but absolutely also the support that they might receive in residential settings. And indeed, that's where it can get very, very expensive. And I, there's a, I mean, there is a real incentive for the parties to actually come together on this. I mean, it seems extraordinary to be talking about that when we're in such a divisive political time. But there is a real incentive. Every Everyone knows that this is a problem. Everyone knows that it's some really hard choices that they as politicians will have to make, but also that they'll then have to confront the public with about how much more we spend on all of this. But they just can't find the mechanism to even have that conversation, let alone then come up with any solutions. I mean, what kind of stuff have they tried in the past to try and get together on this issue? So you're right, there's been a, a big temptation historically on this issue to play politics with it. Mm. So actually, both in 2010, when Labour put forward proposals and they were dubbed the death tax, uh, and in 2017, as Bronwyn mentioned, uh, when uh, Theresa May put forward proposals, uh, it was dubbed as the dementia tax. Yeah, making for great, great, uh, great labels. Yeah, it makes for great levels, labels, but bad policymaking, unfortunately. Mm. But there is a solution, isn't there? There's a solution on the statute book already. Uh, indeed. So uh, there was a review by uh, Sir Andrew Dilnot uh, who proposed uh, a capping system and indeed it was legislated for, but it was never put into practice because uh, George Osborne, who was the Chancellor at the time, was never convinced of the costs of it. And actually... This is, this is capping what people would have to spend Exactly. On a lifetime cap on what you would spend. And indeed, all of the parties are agreed on that, though none of them have a costed plan. The difficulty here isn't coming up with a technical solution to it. There's broad agreement on what the outline of that would look like. The key question is how you raise the additional money to pay for it. And who pays them? And I think that's going to be interesting after this election, because if the Conservatives do win in their first 100 days, they're going to kick off this cross-party commission to try and figure out a you solution You think it will really this. happen? Well, this is where I have to put my sceptical hat on, because, <laughs> of course, everybody loves to talk about cross-party bodies to solve these big complex things and as you were saying Nick it's not the it's not a policy problem it's a political one and that Labour and the Tories both like to attack each other over this and the idea that having just lost an election you're going to have this commission led by we assume Health Secretary Matt Hancock would say Shadow Health Secretary from Labour and people from the Liberal Democrats or the other parties sitting down and coming up with a big solution cross-party things never seem to really work in British politics at all except during campaigns so I just wonder if eventually do you think it would just end up producing the deal not report with sort of a new title and a new badge on because that seems like the obvious solution. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right that if they try and go about it by sitting the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care and his shadows in a room and try and come to a conclusion, you're not going to get anywhere. The politics is going to be too raw. It's why we proposed the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards as a model. So that had uh, MPs and Lords backbenchers uh, from across the Commons and the Lords. It was chaired by Andrew Tyree, who was the well-respected chair of the Treasury Select Committee at the time. And they together were able to forge consensus and they were then able to convince their parliamentary colleagues of the merits of it. And there were some kind of difficult political decisions for all. But because it was such a well-respected 
group of people, they were able to convincingly make the case and get both government and the opposition on board. But the past examples also show when we looked at it, I think that the start of a parliament is quite a good time to do Mm. this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, clearly when the threat of another election is potentially some years away, um, it's easier for parties to potentially compromise on these types of issues. Especially when it's such a thorny issue that they'd all quite like solved. Why why is it? I mean, we know why it's a thorny issue, but that's the really interesting thing. You know, we're all facing the prospect of getting on. We're all facing the prospect of having to use social care. People don't want their families to have to use up lifetime savings. You know, this is an issue that everyone knows we need to solve collectively. But why is it that politicians are so scared of having that conversation with the public? Why is it so difficult to have that conversation with the public? So I think there's certainly some political issues with some of the potential solutions. Yes, clearly, if you try to tap into housing wealth, the British public have historically been very resistant to that. Mm. It's a it's a tricky policy area, though, and partly because the system currently is so heavily means tested mm. that any solution is necessarily going to offer greater benefits to those who are well off. I think the other key issue is that public understanding of social care is generally very low and that therefore even when a proposed solution such as that put forward by the Conservatives in 2017 is more generous than the current system, people are still very critical of it because they they don't understand how miserly the current system is. And indeed, when people find out about it in focus groups or et cetera, they're often quite outraged and open to solutions. So the, they poli- think- the politics of this also reflects, of course, the pension triple lock as well, which is mm. in the Conservative Party manifesto and was one of the things, again, Theresa May tried to resolve in 2017, um, but was incredibly unpopular. And it was put in the, this year's manifesto. There was, I hear, a bit of pushback from some people in the Treasury kind of saying this is such a costly provision um, to voters who are already naturally going to vote Conservative. This is, this, is, this is extra three layers of protection, if you like, for uh, uh, how, sure how pensions, pensions always rise. go up. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, but I think the, the, the problem is that when the politics touches, it just goes, we cannot, these people are our voters, we have to look after them, and if we don't, they're going to go elsewhere. I think there is a real danger, this is why it makes sense to do it in the early stages of this parliament, that if you're going to have to sell some, you know, tough tough policies to your voters, do it early on and then try and make up some capital later down the line. But we obviously need a proper conversation about the intergenerational settlement in this country. And it's the kind of thing nobody wants to do. You know, Labour doesn't want to do it because all their voters are young and they want to make them feel better for the future. And the Conservatives don't want to do it because all their voters are old and they don't want them to stop voting for them. And I think the Conservatives are actually really box themselves in on this with their red lines on this issue. So one red line is that... um, they won't touch people's housing wealth. But actually, they've got three other tax red lines in their manifesto, which is that they won't raise uh, income tax, national insurance or VAT, Mm. which are the three main sources of income for government. So if you rule out the two main uh, taxes on earnings, the main tax on spending and a key way of tapping into wealth, then you're not left with many options of how you raise the additional you're, you're money. Re- you're really a bit stuck. And I, I'm just back from Northern Ireland where they make the point that their health and social care is integrated, un- mm. un- un- uh, unlike in England. Um, uh, but that isn't the solution to all this, even though it seems like the holy grail in some of these discussions. Uh, it is the amount of money that matters. Well, we're going to have to come back to this. But Nick, on your, you show you these um, uh, the, in your performance tracker report, you show things as red if they're very worrying and green if they're doing okay. Where is this one? This is a solid red, I'm afraid. Right. Well, on that note, we will come back to it after the election. No, 
while we're all tracking the polls, no one more so than our very own Vizier of the Variables. He's back again. It's Speed Data with Gavin Freegard. Thank you, Bronwyn. I think I'm more the Sultan of Cephology this week. Um, obviously, one of the stories that people have been talking about is how well will the two big parties do compared to some of the sort of smaller parties. So a quiz question to start. Oh, God, not another. Another one. Uh, since 1945, the highest two-party share of the vote, that's adding Labour and Conservatives together, was a whopping 96.75%. Which election was that? Quite a while back, was it in the 1950s? It's 1951. It was indeed 1951. Well done, well done. I know that one. I I knew you would. (laughs) Yes, why do you ask me that one? And and notable because even though the Labour Party got the highest share of the popular vote, they actually lost the election. Now, of course, I've turned votes into notes. So let's listen to what that election result sounds like. You're about to hear four notes on the piano. The first is the other parties. The next note will be the Liberals, then Labour, then the Conservatives. Okay. So you can hear the sort of the depth of the first two and then the, the next two are quite high. Contrast that with the next election that you're going to hear. The two-party share is down to 70%. Very strong showing from the third party. Which, which year is this coming well, up? which election is ah, it? I'll okay. let you listen. It sounds very coalicious to me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying 2010. That would have sounded quite similar. It's actually 1983. Oh, interesting. I'm saying interesting, but... Uh... <laughs> you, you, ain't, you ain't heard nothing yet. We've still, we've still got two big parties. Yeah. Yeah, so what, the, what we've also done is to look at the polling since January to try to get a sense of what might happen this time round. So I'm delighted to introduce a chorus line chart. Uh, the debut and possibly farewell performance of the Institute for Government Choir. Gavin, what have you been doing in the yeah. library? <laughs> um, so we're calling ourselves Total Eclipse of the Chart, obviously. Um, so you're about to hear Lewis on bass, who will be singing... Brexit. I'm usually a bass, but I'm a counterfeit tenor this week, so I will be singing... Lip Dem. Then we've got Jess, our alto, singing... Labour. And then our soprano, Katie, who will be singing... So let's let's give it a listen, shall we? January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. We were wondering, sitting here, what Seb was going to think of us. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how you managed to track the inside of my head for the last year. You've done a very good job. Gary, this is running away with itself, but uh, brilliant, I guess. Well done. Thank well you done. very much. Well done. Warm up for Christmas there. We've reached the end of Inside Briefing. Next time we meet, we might have a new government, maybe even a new Prime Minister. Apart from the obvious, the vote on Thursday, is there anything else we should have an eye on next week? Hannah, what do you think? Well, we're told, aren't we, that the most sane, normal non-geeks use the last week before the election to decide how they're going to vote. So uh, I'm afraid, you know... Normal voters, you mean? Normal voters. Normal people. I think, you know, the big question is, is there anything that's going to shift the dial in the next week um, and, and, and sway people who haven't yet made up their minds? Seb, what do you reckon? 
I think Friday's TV debate is going to be the huge moment to look at here because that is the last time the two leaders go head-to-head and it's Mr Corbyn's last moment to try and increase his personality ranking. So that will happen on Friday evening in Maidstone and then on Sunday there will be the one of the final YouGov polls in the Sunday Times. And I think those two together and see whether Mr Corbyn has managed to increase from his low ratings and that if that does happen, then there'll be a bit of panic setting in for the Tories. Kath, what about you? Uh, Well, I am waiting for, before the result itself, the exit poll, partly because, I mean, we're all waiting for that moment. You know, exit polls have really defined the last two elections in particular, uh, coming out at 10 o'clock on the day of the election, 10 o'clock at night. Because for me, it then is about what happens next in terms of what I'm doing on the media, what the lines are, what everyone's talking about. Are we talking constitution uh, all night long or are we looking at a conservative majority and what might happen in terms of reshuffle, in terms of you know whether or not we're coming back on the 23rd of December for a Brexit vote in Parliament. Thanks everyone and thank you for listening at home. Don't forget to subscribe to Inside Briefing on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stream us on Spotify too. After you vote in the election, remember to vote for us with a review on iTunes. No interest in power sharing here. We're chasing that number one position in the government charts. We'll be back next Friday, perhaps a little later, certainly a little more bleary-eyed, having stayed up all night to watch the election unfold and running a big event at the IFG on the morning after the election. In the meantime, visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our general election coverage, and do get in touch with us for all your questions. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. See you next week when, well, who knows what we'll all be talking about.